All right. When Jesus departed from there, that is Jairus' house, two blind men followed him, crying out, saying, Son of David, have mercy on us. And when he had come into the house, the blind men came to him. And Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, let it be done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, saying, See that no one knows it. But when they had departed, they spread the news about him in all that country. Just as you would, by the way. As they went out, behold, they brought to him a man, mute and demon-possessed. And when the demon was cast out, the mute spoke. And the multitudes marveled, saying, It was never seen like this in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the ruler of the demons. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them, because they were weary and scattered, like sheep having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the testimony of your son. And um, Lord, we pray that you would just continue to teach us, that we would have a greater understanding, Lord, that our faith would be increased. Help us to have a greater understanding of who you are, Lord, what you've done, what you're capable of. And Lord, as you mentioned here at the end of the chapter, your, your stated vision, Lord, we want to capture vision. We want to join you in it. So help us. And Lord, we thank you for Isaac. We thank you for the improvement that we've seen. Uh, but there are other challenges, Lord, and we pray that, that by a gracious hand, Lord, you would address them. Pray that his appetite would return, that his, his nausea would flee. Lord, that he would be motivated to, to get up and move and, and do his PT. And um, just encourage his heart, Lord, his families. And for Joe and Judy, Lord, especially for Joe, um, Lord, knowing his struggles, his condition, I pray, Lord, that you'd work in his body, that you'd give him energy, give him strength, motivation. But Lord, through all their troubles right now, I, I pray most of all that they would just have fellowship with you. They'd enjoy your presence and be encouraged. So Lord, thank you for your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, please be seated. Wasn't yesterday just gorgeous? Yeah, I, I wanted to flee um, and go play outside of my office, but I had to turn my homework in this morning to you people. So, just a bit of honesty and all that. So anyway, let's, uh, let's get into our text. Uh, verse 27, uh, when Jesus departed, that is Jairus' home, um, two blind men followed him, and crying out, <clears throat> they weren't being quiet, and saying, son of David, have mercy on us. All right, so for being blind, these two men could see better than most. You notice that right off the bat. You know, they're following after Jesus. They're calling out to him saying, son of David. And, and there's this hope of obtaining mercy, okay, in regard to their sight. Now, that's interesting. What significance does the son of David have in regard to blind people? What is the relationship there? Why would they cry out to the son of David? for mercy pertaining to their blindness. 
And then, you know, Jesus wasn't ignoring them, but he did not address them on the street. What he did was he had them follow him into a house before he responded to them. So that brings up an interesting question. Why did he have them follow him into the house? What's going on in this whole story? Well, let me start with the short answer and then we'll draw it out. Now, we already know that Jesus is trying to keep a few things quiet, right? Like the healing of the leper. He just wanted the leper to quietly go to the temple, show himself to the priests, and offer the sacrifice required by Moses, and just kind of maybe let the the religious people circulate the implications of all that. Then, of course, there was the raising of Jairus' daughter, and now this miracle of sight will be added to it as well. Miracles like those, as we've talked about, they have the potential to draw the negative attention from the religious leaders. But if Jesus is publicly recognized as the son of David, who is working these particular miracles, it will get negative attention from Rome as well. It will invite somebody else into the scenario that makes things more dangerous. So Jesus draws these noisy blind men, shouting out son of David into someone else's home, where he can uh, interact with them quietly and privately, okay? So that's the short answer. Let's unpack that a little bit. So first, what's the deal with calling Jesus the son of David? Well, it's another title, kind of like the son of man, but when Jesus referred to himself as the son of man, he initially did not connect it with the vision of Daniel chapter seven, He didn't do it until the very end of his life at the trial before the high priest. So before then, when he used that title of himself, people probably thought that he was referring to himself as as one of the prophets, like Ezekiel, who was so frequently called the son of man. But things are not so ambiguous when it comes to this particular title, the son of David. Um, This carried great significance to the first century Jew, okay? Uh, Nothing, to begin with, provoked patriotism, like the anticipation of the son of David. Let me explain. In both genealogies of Jesus, he is called the son of David, okay? In order to demonstrate that he's the heir to David's throne and that he is indeed the long-awaited Jewish Messiah, the deliverer of Israel, okay? This is all explained with more clarity, the, really the anticipation of the Jews uh, by Gabriel, the angel who announced to Mary that she would conceive by the Holy Spirit. Gabriel says to her, behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and he will be called the son of the highest and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. You see, Jesus isn't just, you know, another heir to David's throne in the line of others. He is the heir, the one promised to David in 2 Samuel 7, and the one promised to the nation of Israel all through the Old Testament prophets. Jesus is the heir that God will cause to sit on David's throne where he will rule forever. And it's in the process of ascending the throne of David that, that all of the enemies of Israel are crushed And the result of his reign will be a righteousness and a justice that endures forever. Now, that's all very interesting, you know, to sort of consider from our perspective. But in the context of first century Israel, who 
at that time was under the oppression of Rome, the announcement of a competitor to the throne would create mixed feelings from different people, okay? For the, patriot, the patriotic Jew, especially the zealot that was living under the hand of Rome, you know, there's nothing more invigorating than the coming of the son of David, who was believed that when he co- would come, he would crush the so-called Pax Romana. In fact, at one point in John 6.15, a crowd of men so eager for all of that, they, they were about to take Jesus by force and make him king. They were gonna get the revolution started. So for the patriot, the son of David was their greatest hope. But then to the Pharisees especially, well, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the announcement of the son of David made them very uneasy, very uneasy. Not because the Pharisees weren't expecting him to come, Uh, they were just on the lookout for imposters. If a person was being hailed as the son of David, but he was not the Messiah, it would incur the unstoppable wrath of Rome. It would come. And of course, that brings us to Rome itself, who was always on the lookout for insurrection, and nothing conjured up images of insurrection in Israel like a messianic figure who the Jews believed would come on the scene and then challenge his authority and his reign. If they got the slightest hint of rebellion, they would come down swiftly and violently, just as Herod did when the wise men came and announced the king of the Jews was born, okay? Now, the patriots would say, bring it on. The Pharisees would say, let's be reasonable. But Rome, in the threat of rebellion, they just, they weren't reasonable, okay? They weren't reasonable. That's why Jesus drew these two blind men into the privacy of someone's home, okay? Now was not the time to publicize his royalty and his right to the throne. Now, of course, Jesus will not be able to stop the people from talking, and eventually it's just going to spread like wildfire across the nation. This messianic hope will just build within the people. Yeah, it comes up again in chapter 12, where it's no longer confined you know, to these two blind men, <clears throat> but the multitudes begin asking this question, could this be the son of David? Of course, the Pharisees jump in real quick and say, no, no, he's, uh, he's cooperating with Beelzebub. That's the ruler of the demons. We'll get to that later. But the answer to this question is, of course, indeed he is. But his first coming was not a mission to slay sinners, but to save them by suffering in their place. Okay? His regal mission will come later when he returns to deliver Israel and judge the living and the dead. All of those expectations will come to pass in God's time. Now, it's going to be this very title that is used against Jesus when the Pharisees bring him uh, before Pilate, you know, who would not be inclined to condemn Jesus on religious grounds. But if he could find evidence for insurrection, Pilate could be, and as we know the story, he would be manipulated to execute Jesus for supposedly instigating a rebellion against Rome. But we don't want to get ahead of ourselves. So great insight from these two blind men. Also, another interesting thing to consider is this. Because of their blindness, they were probably very attentive in the synagogue when certain passages of Scripture were read. Passages like Isaiah 35, verse 5 and 6. Okay? You, I think we can all identify with this. When we are going through certain circumstances... 
we become very attentive to the scriptures that address our condition, don't we? If it relates to what we're going through, we kind of, that's kind of all we see in the scriptures. Well, Isaiah 35 refers to the initial messianic age, which anticipates sight being restored to the blind, hearing to the deaf. Those who are mute, the text says, will sing, and those who are lame will walk. Well, the blind men here, they believed the scriptures. And when they saw these other miracles that are mentioned in Isaiah 35 happening around them, and this individual who has all of these signs of being the son of David, they're ready for it, aren't they? So they find Jesus, somebody brings them to him, or they hear the crowds or something. And so they're going after Jesus, crying out to him, son of David. And when he had come into the house, the, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to him, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Now, I had briefly mentioned uh, last Sunday that faith must have an object of trust that is independent of itself. Faith is not something, you know, we exercise as a means by which something is accomplished or achieved. Faith looks to the object of its trust to accomplish that thing. And Jesus draws that out perfectly here saying, do you believe that I am able to do this? Do you believe that I am able to do this? So faith is something we have and exercise toward the object in which we trust. Jesus is that object. He's the means by which anything is accomplished if he so chooses to grant it. And I think that comes out very clearly here as well. Do you believe that I am able to do this? Me, I am the doer. Faith looks to Jesus as the means, and he certainly is. But the next question is, is he willing? You remember, that was the humble understanding of the leper in chapter 8. He said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. So you see there that Jesus was the object of his trust, and he saw Jesus as the means of his healing, and he understood that if he was to be cleansed, Jesus had to be willing. And all of that is actually implied in the way these blind men approach Jesus. See, they were requesting mercy from Jesus in regard to their blindness. So again, he was the object of their faith. They looked to him as the means of their healing, and they understood that if if they were to receive their sight, Jesus would have to be merciful. That is, he would have to be willing to do this. Now, because of so much false teaching in the church regarding the relationship that faith has to miracles, these are the passages that we should turn to uh, as an excellent apologetic against them, okay? Because people think that they can wield faith like a sword or or it it somehow can, uh, you know, coerce Jesus to do something. Like, if we have faith, he's obligated. Or if I just have faith, I can make things happen, materialize even my own wealth and my health and things like that. It's all very heretical, These are good passages to turn to to correct that. Come back to the text. In response to Jesus' question, you know, do you believe that I am able to do this? The two blind men say, yes, Lord. That is, we believe that you are able. By their affirmation, found in the expression, Lord, this is interesting, they're addressing Jesus as more than sir or master. They've already referred to him as son of David, heir to the throne, the long-awaited Messiah, but now... They're tacking on to that the term Lord. There's a recognition of, of deity in this, not, 
Not simply, you know, superiority and rank. These blind men are looking to Jesus not as a prophet, but as the one who possesses authority and ability within himself to grant them sight. You see, throughout all of the scriptures, people were not to put their hope in a prophet. If they were to put their hope in a prophet, they would be corrected. Because, because the object of hope, the object of faith, goes always beyond them. These guys aren't doing that. Jesus himself has even been calling people to trust in him and to believe that he in himself has the authority and the power to perform the supernatural. And these men believed that that was him, that he had all of that, just as we must. So Jesus touched their eyes saying, according to your faith, let it be to you. So Jesus is able to heal. Jesus is willing to heal, but here he sets the condition by which he will heal. What did they have to do? They had to believe. They had to believe. Remember, we also said last week that because Christ is sovereign, he gets to decide the condition by which he grants healing. He's always able to heal. He possesses all power to do it. He is sometimes willing. And if he is not, there is nothing that can force his hand. There's not enough faith that can force his hand to do something that he is not willing to do. Amen? He has the prerogative to prescribe conditions on which he will perform a miracle. You know, as a parent, I'm often able to perform the request of one of my children. Some of them have requests that are way beyond me, but, you know, sometimes I can fulfill them. And, and I'm often willing to grant that request, but there are times when I exercise my prerogative to prescribe conditions on which I will perform said request. And if they do not meet that condition... They cannot force my hand to perform it, right? Parents? Okay. Well, Jesus is a wise creator, and he will always do the right thing under the right circumstances at the right time in the right way as he prescribes prudent conditions. And that's why we must trust him at all times, you know, even when things don't go our way, even when things don't go our way. You know, for example, Elisha, he was blind in his latter years, and God chose for his own reasons not to restore Elisha's sight. Do you think Elisha, the prophet, had enough faith to be healed? I would think so. But to the day of his death, he served the Lord and the people of Israel faithfully, trusting that God was good and that God was wise, right? He doesn't always heal. He always knows what's best. Yeah. Something also I think that should be said about Jesus' statement, as D.A. Carson points out, he says, the statement is according to your faith does not mean for however much faith you put out, I will give you the sight to match it. You get it? <laughs> if you give me this much faith, I'll give you that much sight. That's not what he meant, okay? If they believe that he is able to restore their sight, then he will restore their sight, all of it. So what happened? And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, saying, See that no one knows it. But when they had departed, they spread the news about him in all the country. The first thing they saw was their creator staring back at them. That'd be a pretty good thing to see, first thing. Now, I can only imagine the emotion that, that flooded their souls at that, that moment, you know, the appreciation that overwhelmed them. I was watching a, a video about... Uh, a boy that was born that uh, I think it was he couldn't see color. And then at like age 12, he received some device 
by which he could see color. And they gave it to him, I think it was for his birthday. And when he put it on, he just, he couldn't even speak to his parents. He just started to weep, to see life and color for the first time. Or like these men, to see for the very first time must have been just mind-blowing. They came into the house walking only by faith, but now they could leave walking by sight as they lived by faith. Yeah. But then Jesus spoiled all their fun and sternly warned them, saying, see that no one knows it. Man, you know, now that they can see, no one can know how they came to see. You know, this isn't going to be easy. This isn't a small town. Everyone knows who these blind men are. It's not like they can go around pretending like they're still blind, okay? People are certainly going to inquire. You know, everywhere Jesus went, there was a crowd. There was probably a crowd outside, okay? They saw the blind men go in blind, and they're about to see them come out seeing. Everyone will know that Jesus done it, right? He's the only one doing it. But these guys didn't concern themselves with any of the challenges of keeping quiet. They just went everywhere telling everyone that Jesus, the son of David, the Messiah, had mercy on them, just like Isaiah 35 said he would. (laughs) So I don't want to give credit to someone that disobeys, but in all of the excitement, they probably didn't hear the warning very well. You know what I'm saying? What do you do? We move on. As they went out, that's Jesus and the boys, behold, they brought to him a man, mute and demon-possessed. And when the demon was cast out, the mute spoke, also mentioned in Isaiah 35. And the multitudes marveled, saying, it was never seen like this in Israel. Now, the man in our story was mute because of a demon. It wasn't something that he was, you know, born with and It wasn't caused by a disease or some kind of accident, you know, a stroke or traumatic brain injury or something like that. The cause was supernatural. And so the cure had to be supernatural, but from a greater authority. You know, someone more powerful than the demon had to intervene, and he did. And so when that demon was evicted, the man spoke. Now, we don't know how long that the man was mute, but because of the crowd's response, he must have been mute for some time, for some time. And I think this response from the crowd is great. You know, if I could translate for you, it's like saying, well, you don't see that every day. (laughs) This has never been seen in Israel before. (laughs) Yeah, Isaiah 35 is coming alive in the Galilee. Yeah, the only one left to fulfill, which will be fulfilled, is giving, restoring the hearing to a deaf man. That's it. But not everyone in our story was impressed But the Pharisees said, he casts out demons by the ruler of the demons. You know, these scoundrels. This this kind of talk here is just out of pure jealousy. That the people are paying attention to Jesus and, and they're not paying attention to them. Okay, the ruler of the demons, of course, is Satan. They're saying that Jesus is casting out demons by the power of Satan, who himself rules over the demonic world. It's a... It's a terrible insult to Jesus that he's in cahoots, he's in cooperation with the devil himself to help people, okay? They had no grounds for such a claim. There's no text of scripture to verify their criticism. It's just envy, that's all it is, okay? We'll we'll come back to that in Matthew 12. Uh, The Pharisees are gonna get more specific and uh, Jesus 
for the first time really begins to interact with the Pharisees. And that's when things get really fun in the story. Let's keep going. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. This is amazing. Jesus is teaching, preaching, but to us, the real amazing thing is that he's healing every sickness and every disease of the people. It's amazing. It's wonderful. But, Jesus says, but. Do you see the contrast there? He is not impressed. Something is wrong. When he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Jesus, you just, you just healed everybody in all of the villages, all of the towns. What do you mean, but? There's something more. There's, there's something worse than the diseases. Something about the condition of the people so pained him that his, his gut was wrenching. To be moved with compassion was to have a, a visceral reaction. The word is splagnizomai. Work on that one for a bit. It means, to, it means for your gut to churn and, and, and to, to, to uh, you know, a visceral yearning. So what did Jesus see about the people that made his gut twist and churn with that kind of compassion? He saw people, it says, weary and scattered like sheep without a shepherd. Now, the vast majority of all ancient manuscripts say that the people were like sheep that were harassed and dispirited. That's hopeless or aimless. What does all that mean? Well, the people, they had shepherds. They were the Pharisees, but they were misleading the people with all of their rabbinical traditions. And it's the traditions that left the people hopeless and aimless. It was this senseless legalism that actually led people away from God. It was, it was spiritual harassment. There's nothing refreshing in those traditions, nothing to provide the soul with redemption. In fact, the nature of all those things was oppressive. So the Jewish people were spiritually oppressed and aimless, and that is far greater, according to Jesus, than any kind of physical suffering. And he said to his disciples, The harvest truly is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out labors into his harvest. So the illustration moves from the flock to the field. Humanity now is looked upon as this great field of unredeemed people. But Christ longs to have a harvest among them to redeem as many as would believe and be saved. And he calls upon his disciples not only to go and you know, labor in that field of unredeemed people, but to pray that God would add to their numbers so that his harvest among them would be bountiful. But this doesn't exactly explain Jesus' visceral reaction as he looks upon the field of the unredeemed. But here I think that we're kind of catching on, you know, that from these words we find Jesus' perspective and, and then we find his priority. Prior to this moment... You know, since the beginning of chapter 8, Jesus has healed every sickness he's, that he's encountered. He's evicted every demon in his path. He, he tamed a deadly storm and calmed the sea, saving everybody's lives that were on board. He has restored sight to the blind, speech to the mute, and he's raised the dead, but he's not content. He's not content. You know, for those of the world, this would be enough. This would satisfy, you know. Bringing an end to human suffering is one of man's greatest desires, right? But 
but their desires are short-sighted. Jesus was certainly interested in alleviating suffering, but his true commitment lied way beyond that. When he saw the multitudes, he saw something far worse than suffering. Because of their sin, he saw death. He saw alienation from God. And if they were not intercepted, their alienation would be permanent. That's his divine perspective. And so his priority was to redeem their soul from eternal misery, which would alleviate all suffering. Jesus was moved with compassion always for many reasons, but his heart was always drawn back to man's soul. Because of sin, man is separated from God. Paul says that unredeemed man is a child of wrath, the object of the severest condemnation. And physical suffering is merely a symptom of this. And Jesus came for the cause. The angel said to Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their their sin. Suffering is a symptom of Adam's failure in the garden. It's a product of sin in our world and in us. Illness exists because of our rebellion against God. For by one man sin entered the world and death by sin. And thus death spread to all men and all the things that lead to death. Because of this, God owes sinful humanity nothing. And any good thing that comes from his hand is undeserved. It's a product of pure, unadulterated mercy. And it is the love of God as he is compelled within himself to grant his mercy, his grace. We are undeserving of his goodness and of his kindness. The only thing we deserve is to be left to the consequences of our own sin. That's all that we deserve. You know, no judge owes a criminal anything. A judge's responsibility is to justice. He can grant mercy and he may be, be compelled to do so, but he does not owe it. His obligations lie elsewhere. But God, in his great mercy, seeks not only to heal when he deems it appropriate, he sent his son in our likeness to take upon himself the guilt of our sin and then to endure eternal justice on Calvary's cross, the penalty that was our own. You know, let me remind you, let me help you feel uneasy about yourself and for those who so often, we so often deem as good people. They are not And we are not. We are all quite the opposite. We are not good people in a bad world where bad things happen to good people. The only bad thing that ever happened to a good person was when Jesus was blasphemed, abandoned, and falsely accused, and beaten, and mocked, and crucified. And bad things happen, but not to good people. Because good people are like Santa Claus. They don't exist And if Santa Claus did exist, he wouldn't bring gifts to any of us because there are none good, not even one. There's only one list. What list is that? It's the naughty list. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We made the naughty list because of our thoughts, our motives, our actions, our words, the looks we give people. Scripture says that our corruption is to the core. Just look in the mirror. And so our need for Jesus is desperate. So bad things only happen to one good person, the one who didn't deserve it, but took it upon himself to pay our penalty at the judgment bar of God. You guys, we need to get our theology right, and then we'll get our perspective right. We need to get our theology in line with Jesus. There's none righteous, not even one. Everyone apart from him is lost, and so when he looks upon the masses, he sees their desperation And so his gut wrenches. So his priority is to limit the number of people plunging themselves into eternal misery. And he has called upon us to embrace his perspective, to 
to have that same compassion and to both join him in the effort of reaching them and to plead with God to add to our ranks. We're to pick up where he left off in the harvest. I just read that the earth's population just hit 8 billion people. And the moral condition of our world is decaying at a rapid pace. Yeah. And so these words of Jesus are more sobering than ever. Wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Narrow is the gate and difficult is the way that leads to life and few find it. The need is greater than ever for laborers, right? Yeah. My man's own sinful will, you guys, he will gladly take the wide gate to eternal misery. Let us warn them of the danger and persuade them to take refuge in Jesus. And in the process, let us not forget to pray to the Lord of the harvest to raise up labors to harvest with us. Let's pray. Please stand up. Father, it is real easy for us to get caught up in our own little world, in our own little community, where life really is. I mean, it's better with your people. It's, it's better because of your word. It's better because we're worshipers. It's certainly not perfect. But when we look out there, it's, it's better in here. But Lord, your perspective has not changed at all in regard to humanity. Lord, help us by your grace to, to feel what you felt, to see what you saw, to have splogna, Lord, to wrench in our gut when we see the unbeliever who is rapidly heading toward eternal misery without you. Lord, we're going to move on from here and we're going to enter into your presence and rejoice. But those without you will be removed into outer darkness. Lord, give us sight. Give us compassion. Give us courage. Lord, help us to, to go into the field and harvest. And as you have commanded, that, Lord, that we would pray that you would add. So, Lord, pray. I pray that you would raise up more among us. Lord, that have your perspective, that have your heart. Lord, fill us, encourage us. Help us to be faithful to the call. Lord, thank you for saving us. Help us to remember where we came from so that we can look back on them and tell them to join us. Father, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.